Hey everybody, Doug here. Before we get started with the show, I want to tell you about a new book that Peter and I have published called From the Earth to the Moon, the miniseries Companion. If you love space and space exploration and movies and television shows about space and space exploration, this is for you. If you think you've read it all and know everything there is to know about the moon flights, we want you to think again. Uh, in 1998, the landmark TV series, From the Earth to the Moon, aired on HBO in 12 episodes, told the daring story of NASA's Project Apollo to put humans on the moon. Our book provides a comprehensive and detailed analysis of each episode of the miniseries and covers Apollo from start to finish and then some. It's more than a simple episode guide. Our companion reevaluates the entire Apollo program, both within and outside the context of the HBO series. We review the choices that the filmmakers made regarding the actors, special effects, and historical accuracy in every episode. We show what they got right, what they got wrong, and what they didn't tell you about each of the historic moon flights. Um, we cover all manned Apollo missions, the creation of the lunar module, the Apollo 1 fire and its aftermath, the personal and professional highs and lows of the astronauts, and lots of key NASA personnel. As an added bonus, the book includes an in-depth interview that I did with Andrew Chaikin, author of A Man on the Moon, the book that was the basis for the entire miniseries. It also includes 35 great images, many of which I can guarantee you've never seen before. Um, you can buy the book on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, or any of the book reader platforms. Uh, again, uh, we hope you check it out, and uh, on to the show. Thanks. All right, uh, lift off and the clock is started. Yes, sir, reading you loud and clear. You've got speed, John Glenn. Okay, everybody, welcome uh, to the Right Stuff Companion. Uh, this is episode two. Uh, we remain your hosts. Uh, my colleague is Peter, and I am Doug. Uh, so we're going to do uh, episode two today. Um, this episode is titled Goodies. It's written by uh, Lizzie uh, Mickery, and it's directed by John Coles. And like uh, I believe like the first episode, uh, it launched on October 9th of 2020. Uh, welcome. Welcome, Doug. Uh, John Coles, who directed this, is a is a hardcore TV uh, TV director, a veteran. It looks like he's got about thirty or forty episodes of television under his belt, going back about twenty years. So this, I think, this episode is a little bit better helmed than episode one, Sierra Hotel, which was directed by uh, Chris Long. Chris Long has done good work too, but I don't think is his experience a director as uh, as john coles well i think the the, the showrunner um mark lafferty wrote the first one right so um i'm sure obviously if you're the showrunner you have oversight but maybe this was written better as well yeah i think it was i think it was it moves a little faster you know like you would be hard pressed to find people more interested in the space program than Peter and I, but I'm not going to lie to you. Like I, I had to take a break on the first episode. I couldn't get through it in one shot. It was a little slow. Whereas this, I watched in one shot uh, without any trouble. I think this ep second episode is a lot more enjoyable. Um, so we pick up, uh, we pick up with the press briefing where we ended episode one on, uh, where they're sort of uh, right in the middle of the press briefing where Gilruth uh, introduces the original Mercury 7 astronauts to the American press. 
with uh, some lines that are directly from the press briefing itself that are highlighted also in the Right Stuff film. Um, and I think the main point of the scene is that all the astronauts and the press and Gilruth realize how much better Glenn is in front of the media than everybody else. Yeah, Glenn is a pro. I mean, he'd been on you know TV before. He'd been on a game show for like a week or whatever. Right, and he'd done that famous transcontinental uh, sort of speed record flight where yeah. he got a lot of media attention. Yeah. Um. um and he, we see he's, uh, he's really comfortable. Um, yeah. He's really, really comfortable. Uh, and he likes it, you know, like he likes the glare. He's also, yeah, he's a good looking guy. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he, you know, like the camera likes him. Um, uh, we see Louise Shepard get a phone call that uh, she needs to open her door. Like she's watching the press briefing and she realizes that she needs to open her door. And there's a swarm of reporters out there. Right. All of a sudden. And, Right. And this sort of the image of the swarm of reporters, we've seen it in the right stuff. We've seen it in Apollo 13. We saw it in From the Earth to the Moon. It's sort of a staple of these these movies and shows is the, you know, the intrusion, the imposition of the media onto the lives of the astronauts and more importantly, their families. Right. The families didn't sign up for this. Right. Right. I'm sure. And, it's and, a and major how, part of, you know, if this happens to anybody, it's it's life changing. Right, and how incredibly disruptive it is, right? Yeah. And these are these are meant to be young men with young wives and young children, right? Who are suddenly sort of barricading in their house. Yep. Right? They can't walk to the to the mailbox, right? Or get in the car to go to the, the Kroger, right? To to yep. buy a gallon of milk without being assaulted by by cameramen and reporters. Um, uh, you know, we even see, for example, Glenn, right, to show how good Glenn is with reporters, he lets them jog with him, right? Yeah. We talked about Glenn's jogging in the last episode, but she did to keep his weight down. And, you know, he's out there in his uh, sweats, and these guys are running after him down the street in suits and dress shoes. <laughs> right. <laughs> trying with a, with a to get a quote. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> That was actually a pretty good image. I don't know if that yeah. happened in real life, but it's a it's a it's it's a great metaphorical take on you know the the press and the astronauts. Right. Yeah, that's well done. Um, and they're all supposed to be you know living in in the, uh, the same sort of areas uh, together. And we, he comes across Gus Grissom, who I think is supposed to be with Deke. It's sort of implied that that is Deke with Gus, and he is returning home from a hunting trip with a bear carcass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a very it's it's this kind of ungainly picture he comes back and he looks kind of grubby you know he's been hunting and right and the, the bear carcass is bloody yeah and this blanket and the, the press are all there and it's just it's very kind of unsightly the entire scene and glenn just basically rolls up and takes charge and turns it into like a normal photo shoot Right, and Glenn inserts himself just like in the press briefing. He is in the center of all the photos. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know. Uh, Although it's sort of implied that he's trying to make the best of a sort of an unsightly situation. <laughs> right, right. But exactly. But he's also doing it in a way that makes himself look good. And he like he ropes Betty Grissom, who clearly wants no part of this endeavor. He ropes Betty Grissom into the photo to the point that he even puts his arm around her. Yeah. Um, and there they are. Um, 
So I don't know. That was, you know, I, I got to tell you, five minutes into this episode, it's better than episode one, Sierra Hotel. Five minutes in, it's better. Yeah, right. No, they no they got more good stuff on camera at this point in the show than they did in the whole first episode. Yep, they've had a couple of good scenes already. I'm not going to lie to you. If this episode had been as uh, let's just say deflating as as Sierra Hotel episode one, I don't know if I could have kept going. Like I might have called you and said, let's can it, you know? Yeah. Uh, but this, I, I'm not going to lie to you. I breathed the sigh of relief with that bear scene. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we learned that uh, Trudy Cooper was a pilot uh, and did air races. Uh, that's just a sort of a brief side there. And then we get to um, Gilreth, Bob Gilreth lamenting that the rockets all blow up. And uh, he's very, very worried about this press coverage because he feels like it's not important and they, there's too much emphasis on PR and they need to be working on policies and procedures and rockets and technology and hardware. And that's where Gilreth's head is. And then uh, we meet Shorty Powers, who who kind of bitch slaps Gilruth a little bit. He basically says, like, you've got to have the press. Like, you, you don't have the press. You have nothing. Right, because, you know, he's saying that there's a lot of political opposition to spending these massive billions of dollars on a space program. And, you know, if you have the public, if you have good PR and you have the public behind you, then you have the politicians will follow public opinion and they will fund and that's right. what you need the money. And, and the way that this is done in, in the movie of The Right Stuff, we can call it the TRSM, The Right Stuff movie. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. Uh, but the way they do it in TRSM is that they use the line, no bucks, no buck Rogers. Right. <laughs> right. That sort of simple concept is how like it is conveyed to the astronauts. You got to have funding or, you know, this whole thing doesn't exist. Right. Um, and they actually are fairly effective at showing that because they mentioned that there's, they have trouble sort of getting the amount of money they need and that they're in a rush and they haven't like, the airfield's not cleared, the quarters are not set up, the, you know, they're, they're running behind and sort of building the amount of infrastructure they need. Right. Yeah, no, it's important. It's, it's vitally important. You know, right. uh, Shorty Powers, uh, also known as John A. Powers, you know, um, they, you know, it's interesting. They don't give a lot of exposition on who these people are. And, and you know, and I mean, you and I know who Shorty Powers is, but, you know, like if you're new to this, like they, they obviously might have done a little bit more to convey like Gilruth Craft Powers, like who these people are. You know, Shorty right. Powers was the original NASA uh, public affairs officer. Uh, I mean, he was so close with the the Mercury 7 that they called him the eighth astronaut because he was with them everywhere they went all the time. And when you listen to, um, you know, like when they would, you know, have a launch of a Mercury flight, it was Shorty Power's voice that you heard. You know, you heard, I mean, you know, Walter Cronkite and those guys were talking too, but what, what the voice of NASA was no. Shorty Power's. Right. So... Five foot six, I believe. <laughs> don't they call him General Powers in this? I don't think he was a general. Uh, yeah, no, I think that may, may have been a they may have been joking there. Uh, um, but uh, he was an I think he was also an Air Force uh, public affairs officer as well. I think that maybe I don't think he's. I don't. Well, let's look it up. Let me look. 
He was a yeah, lieutenant was in, colonel in the Air Force. Yeah, yeah, he was a lieutenant colonel. But but you know, it was Shorty Powers, like like you know, like he was a real guy and he played a real role in in the in the you know the very very beginning of of NASA. Um, and you know, Shorty is smart enough to enlist the Mercury Seven in PR. Right, he knows right. like these are the guys that are going to generate the funding. Right, and we've got to get them out there. And you know, Gilruth doesn't want him doing that, but uh, but Powers creates his PR tour where they they fly around the country in a DC three, uh, landing on. There's a great scene where it lands on a grass airstrip. Not an easy thing to do in a DC three, uh, doing PR events, and and it's made very very clear that Shepard is awful at this stuff. Yeah, he is terrible. He's short tempered and terse, and it's everything that they're not supposed to do. Yep. Uh, there's a there's a great scene where one of them goes to a glove maker in in Akron, Ohio, where they're building where they're making parts of the spacesuits, and you know he is able to. I forget who it is. It might even be Glenn. Probably Glenn, because Glenn is from Ohio. Um, and he is able to just make these people feel so a part of the program and the dream of flying in space, and you know. Like he basically conveys to these glove makers, like I can't get into space without you. And when I fly in space, it's because of you. And they are just on their feet. Yeah. You know, and they realize like, you know, like, wow, like this is how you're going to do it. You're going to keep everybody in line. Um, and there's a great scene uh, in this episode, maybe the best scene in the episode where Leo Diorsi, Diorsi, Dorsey, uh, where he corners John Glenn in a toilet. Yes. Um, and, and basically uh, offers his services as a as a an agent or like a you know yeah agent is the word yeah as an agent um, and and Glenn has literally taken a piss yep uh, and wants nothing to do with him right um, and he gives him his card and he says like I know you know people in Washington you need to ask them about me yeah uh, and it's it's a really understated scene because a lot happens there and you can see that. With that last line, like, talk to your Washington friends, he gets through to Glenn. Right. Um, uh, by the way, Dorsey, Dorsey, uh, he was uh, the owner of the Washington Redskins. Mm. Um, and uh, we then, uh, we, uh, there's, a, there's a nice bit where, uh, at that same PR event where, where Leo, I'm going to call him Leo because I don't want to mangle his name, he, you know, he corners Glenn in the toilet Afterwards, uh, Shepard is outside and he sees a Corvette and he really admires it. Mm -hmm. But he, he, you know, it's out of his reach. He can't afford it on his on his Navy salary. Um, and he kind of gets told by the owner of the Corvette who gets in and drives off like you can look, but don't touch. Um, and it's sort of setting the stage a little bit for the fact that the astronauts are poor. Like they're on their military men on military salaries. Uh, we learned that, for example, Trudy Cooper can't fly anymore because she can't afford it. Like she wants to fly and she right. they don't have the money. Um, and uh, uh, Shepard is very slow to realize that this PR matters and his wife has to point it out to him. Uh, Louise, Louise has to point out to him. You know, he says, well, I'm the best pilot. And then Louise says, like, that may not be the most important thing anymore. Right. Right. Everybody who has any kind of street smart, so to speak, or has a more, let's say, measured opinion, um, 
is kind of trying to tell him that uh, he he doesn't think he's not thinking of the full picture. No, he's not. And again, you know, the very skills that got him to this point are suddenly not the most important skills. And when 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 Shepard has this realization, he realizes that he thought he was first, and he's not. It's it's Glenn is in first place, right? Which is a very very upsetting realization for him. Um, and, you know, uh, they cut back uh, very nicely to Gilrith and Shorty Powers talking about how they have to control the PR. Um, and uh, one of the reasons that they have to do it is the astronauts are poor. Uh, like, they just flat out say it. They don't have any money, and they they need, you know, they're taking some of these PR opportunities because there's maybe a little money in it for them. And they say, we have to just take control of this whole thing um, and find them a deal that not only gets us glowing PR, but also puts some money in the astronauts' pockets so that the pressure is off of them to do other things. Right. They basically imply they're, that they took a pay cut to work for NASA because they lost their flight pay. Yeah. No, I think they, they actually they don't just imply it. They flat out say it. Right. Um, uh, and, and, you know, the point is made in the Right Stuff movie about how little money they make, mostly in terms of the context of Jaeger's salary, which is, I believe, uh, they, they say it's $283 a month. Right. Now, granted, that's in the 40s, but it's implied that, you know, these guys are risking their lives for peanuts, literally peanuts. Yeah. Um, and then there's a really nice scene. I'm, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but there's, we transition from this Gilroth Shorty Powers conversation to a really nice scene where the Glens host the Coopers for dinner. Yep. Um, and it, it, it says a lot about both families. You know, Glenn is portrayed as a solid family man, you know, and he's comfortable with his children and he's comfortable with his wife, Annie. Right. And her jackhammer stutter, as they call it in the book. Yeah. Um, and the Coopers, you know, they have to lie. Like the whole dinner is a bit of a lie. And, right. and uh, Annie asks, Trudy, how did you guys meet? And then she says to, to Gordo, you tell it because she doesn't want to lie. Like she doesn't want to go down the pathway and maybe have to reveal that their marriage is at this point still a sham. Right. Although, um, you know, and then when, when, Gordo tells the story. He tell he it, it has some romance in it, you know, like it. They make clear that he still loves her, or whatever that means. Yeah, and he's he's still smitten with her, and right. she's you know she's not sure, or she's still keeping him at arm's length. Like right. she's cool to him at the dinner. Yes, you know, Can't like blame her really. I guess. Yeah, they don't tip their hand, the Coopers, but you can see like. Like the Glens effortlessly convey that they are a happy couple. Right. Whereas they can't do that. Um, uh, the, you know, there's, 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 they have to, like, Glenn is tasked by talking to Cooper because he punched a reporter because a reporter showed up on his lawn and basically said, like, I know you're having an affair and I know the girl's name. Right. Um, and then we find out that NASA pays off that reporter, but you know, Glenn basically has to tell Cooper, like, you cannot do that. Yes. Uh, and you know, we're all building up to what is, you know, th this is all building up to what is famously referred to as the Kona Kai seance, where it's shown in the right stuff. And it's going to be shown later in the series where Glenn says to the other astronauts, like, you've got to stop, like, 
like people are looking at us. Uh, but you could see they're building up to it here where Glenn is essentially sent on a mission from NASA higher ups to convey a message to Cooper. Like, you got to stop this, right? You cannot have a mistress. Or you, at the very least, you cannot be caught having a mistress. Right. Um, while all this is going on. And you can see how... You can see how this affects Glenn's thinking, right? Have initially being dismissive, right, of, of DRC, right, to to basically following through and 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 being the linchpin of getting the astronauts the life deal, right? Which we then see in the very, very next scene. It's also it's it's a very straight scene, but it's it's pretty decent. You know, it's basically a presentation where um the the editor for Life magazine explains to them Wainwright right what right? the what the, what the intention is what they're going to do that they'll have an exclusive deal with Life Life will profile them uh, the astronauts basically will have editorial say um, and Life will portray them in a in a heroic way and glowing absolutely right, glowing right he basically says you know a la Douglas MacArthur and FDR, FDR, right? So, and they're going to be basically absolutely heroically portrayed, and on top of that, they're going to get paid and right. a lot. And you find out it's like twenty five thousand dollars a year, um, right? So, I, I found an online converter, um, and twenty five thousand dollars in nineteen fifty nine is two hundred twenty three thousand dollars today. So, a lot of money for these guys. Yeah. Per year, by the way, right? Per year, right. it's it's a right. It's to for continued access. It's a it's a stipend. To and, each, you of know, them. it's not just portrayals of them. It's portrayals of their wives, their families. It's all going to be just wall to wall, glowing, exclusive coverage, and it's a way to get the reporters off their lawn because NASA and Life will say to the media, "Pause off." Right? They have an exclusive deal with us. Right. right? You're all shut out. It's a brilliant, honestly, it's a brilliant move on the part of life if you think about it. Yeah, it's a, it's really, it's a great symbiotic relationship, and and life, yeah, life did a great job, and they had the standing to do it. Um, uh, they one thing that they don't say in, in this show that is actually very important and helped sell the deal is, um, uh they just openly agreed to lie about who would write the articles. And for example, the articles appeared under the astronauts or their wives' bylines. Like the article would say written by John Glenn, even though it was completely ghost written. Right. Um, but that was a big perk that it would, the astronauts and their families could have at least the appearance in front of the American public that they were the ones writing the articles now i imagine even then probably people didn't believe that but it, you know boy i bet that looked good did. if you were if you i don't know i bet it looked good if you were you know a, a military housewife to have a, an article under your name in life magazine sure you know right and, you know but i think you know we should back up a little bit and talk about the importance of life magazine in society at this time and magazines in general, right? There's no cable. There's no cable news. The news was 15 or 20 minutes a night at six o'clock. Right? right. And people got their news from weekly news magazines, right? Life Newsweek, time look, things like that. Right. And newspapers. So that was the media then. 
Right. And the, the news weeklies and especially life, they're all very heavily photographically based with large, you know, high resolution photos. Whereas, right. And then color, right. At least on the, on the cover. And, um, they were, you know, the newspapers printed much lower resolution, resolution pictures. So these news magazines in an era, I mean, way before computers, right. Uh, were able to del- <clears throat> excuse me, to deliver visual, you know, beautiful pictures to people that they could see that were very timely. And it, con- it conveyed the story in a way that, like you're saying, like like a black and white TV or uh, a, a black and white newspaper photo c- could not. Right. Um, I have um, the other magazine that covered uh, NASA in, in excruciating detail was National Geographic. And I have to this day, I'm looking at it while we're talking, I have stacks of uh, the National Geographic covering uh, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. And the photos are, they're unbelievable. They look great to this day, like the yes. quality and the color of the photos. I, there's a, there's an antique store uh, near me that uh, I was able to pick up a lot of these at. And I've, I have some of them I've had since I was a kid, but I have, I have a few of the lives. So I have a lot of the National Geographic, but I have a few of the life magazines. And the other thing that's important about life, especially, for example, in comparison to National Geographic, is it's large format. Right, yeah. it's a difference to to put it in terms that our our listeners, if they are younger, may get. It's the difference between, you know, a CD cover and an album, a vinyl album cover. Right, yeah. that's you know, or or a thumbnail to a giant JPEG or or TIFF image on your on your browser. Like the scale of Life magazine, I mean, it must have been like eleven by eighteen. Yeah, and it was more feature kind of focused and was sort of more accessible. National Geographic kind of came out of this old uh, map-based kind of like exploring culture thing. So the NASA stuff was, even though maybe it was the thing that sold that magazine when it was on there. Yeah. It was, Life, by the way, was 10 by 14, a big. Yeah, it was, you know, National Geographic, it wasn't sort of the primary reason for that magazine to be, whereas in Life it was. You know, there was yeah. one thing on the cover. Yeah, and, and you know, you and I are, too, you know, and we're we're not youngsters, but, Peter and I are too young to really have lived at a time where life mattered. I don't think. I mean, I don't, when we were kids, I didn't know anybody who still read Life magazine. No, life and look, you know, had disappeared. Yeah, um, and which was a big competitor to life and right, life had very dwindled. focused on photo, photographic essays. Right, life had dwindled, and I think it was because you know TV got better, it became color. And, yeah, color, color, and bigger screens. Yeah, and um, you know. Uh, that was probably the main reason. And, and yeah. you know, National Geographic actually did persist because that, ironically, that more sort of out-of-date um, editorial style they had actually per- was able to persist because nobody yeah. else did that. And National Geographic persists to this day. Right. I think it's like 130 years or something like that. 132, yep. something like like life. Sorry, National Geographic is still going. And, you know, National Geographic, I think, has subsisted by a lot of special issues you know like they've done 20 issues on the titanic you know what i'm saying like they they do these special single topic issues that you can buy at the grocery counter whether or not you're a subscriber that and that probably brings in a huge amount of revenue to them but and they moved into cable obviously into television yeah but to bring it back to this show you know like when you signed an exclusive contract with life you were signing with the biggest media outlet in the united states Right. This right. was this was the Cadillac of deals uh, that you could possibly get. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, 
I shit, I'd sign the life deal if I was them. You know, I would have run to that. And there's there's a great bit where they're like they're getting this sort of glowing pitch, and there's sort of sort of hint of money, and and uh, and and I think it's it's uh, I think it's it's Wally says, just tell us the number, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like, yeah. like, fine, fine, fine. Like how much money are we going to get? You know, and it, it might be the first joke in the series, <laughs> you know, and like, it's a good, it's a good scene. Yeah. It's a good scene. Um, and then Cooper, Cooper has to tell Trudy that he signed this deal without her and she gets pissed. Like, what do you mean you did this without me? Yeah. And then when he tells her the deal, she's totally won over and she realizes now she can fly again. Like now they have enough money for her to fly again. Right. Um, nicely done. Nicely done. Maybe, maybe the best scene of the episode or the best sequence of the episode to make it a little bigger. Uh, we then shift to the astronauts heading out to Florida, right? Where Mercury uh, control is being built. Um, uh, and the astronauts are to be housed in the dreadful, hot and humid and dingy and filthy hangar S. Yeah. <laughs> Um, which is a which is a, a crap hole, just to put it politely, right? Um, and we meet D O'Hara, who uh, will be who will become the astronauts' nurse. Uh, D is featured in From the Earth to the Moon, um, the episode about Apollo Seven. Um, the woman who plays uh, D O'Hara in this show doesn't quite look uh, as much as like the woman who played her in from the earth to the moon here. It's uh, Kaylee, uh, Rone. I may be pronouncing that in Ronane. Uh, she plays Dio Hara here, um, in, uh, in from the earth to the moon. I'm trying to remember who portrayed her, but the woman who played her, who did her in from the earth to the moon looked much, much more like her. Um, Dio Hara, by the way, still alive, age 85. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we are introduced to her because Shepard makes a, a naked ploy to hit on her and, she gets bit slapped. Yeah. Um, and they are all shown to their barracks, which they look at for about 10 seconds. Uh, and they hightail it. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> under under Shepard's leadership, they all they all uh, hightail it to the Starline uh, motel. Right. With um, the pool and a tiki bar. Right. And and more importantly, privacy and rooms with locks on them. Right, right. And booze and chicks and right and women who are known as cookies in the right stuff. <laughs> uh, right, women that they can you know sort of like a, a short uh, sweet uh, interlude. Um, and uh, you know we see the man literally passed out drunk lying on the pool. One of them is sleeping on the diving board. <laughs> the following morning after uh, after a night of what sounds like pretty good debauchery, you know, you know, our generation just isn't as good as debauchery as these guys to our to our detriment. I think some people probably are. But, yeah, you know. I don't know. Let's just say that you and I weren't so good at that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to make triple the effort right now and try. I know. Seriously, all right. I'm I got gonna, catching up to do. I'm gonna start drinking, you know, some scotch while we while we record these episodes just to get the tone right. Um, and there's a nice uh, there's a nice scene of Trudy uh, uh, Trudy Cooper and, and her kid, one of their daughters, uh, and the daughter is sort of inspired by what she perceives as her father's heroism and fighter jockiness to try to ride her bicycle with her eyes closed. By the way, the bicycle that she got because of the Life magazine deal, right? Um, and she, uh, with her eyes closed, she bikes directly into a car, and it, she's pretty banged up. I wasn't quite sure if they were supposed to convey that she broke her arm or not. Yeah. 
she's, she's injured, pretty whatever but she's pretty banged up but it's an, it's a nice way to convey that you know all this stuff filters down to the kids and the kids are paying attention you know and maybe they're learning not the right lessons right from all of this um but I thought that was a good scene and a good use of the kids. You know, the kids are often used in these sorts of shows to, for sort of schmaltz or syrupy purposes. But like, for example, the way that at the Cooper Glenn family dinner, uh, we saw, you know, like Glenn's kid is like trying to, you know, kick, kick Gordo and his wife with his karate, you know, like the way a kid would actually be. Uh, or here, like the way that Trudy Cooper's daughter, uh, you know, she gets herself in trouble. Like there was a, it was a good bet. It was right. a good bet. And then we finish on the Corvette deal, right? Jim Rathman goes on to give multiple generations of astronauts for all intents and purposes, very, very steeply discounted, if not at cost or less, Corvettes, basically to, to drum up business for right. his dealership. Um, and, we, and we finish the episode with Gordo... Uh, and Glenn out on a jog, and Gordo is having a terrible time keeping up. You know, Glenn even says something to the effect of, like, I can smell the rum coming out of your pores. Right. Um, and and Shepard pulls up in, a, in his new Corvette with not one, but two women. Right. Um, sort of implying, you know, I'm going to get my own form of exercise, boys. Yeah, he had another <laughs> one in the trunk, by the way. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, and you know, and he sort of roars off into the distance, uh, and and leaves Glenn and Cooper and is literally in his literal and metaphorical dust. Right. Um, and and a winded Cooper can only sort of like you know rest his hands on his knees, and Glenn jogs on and soldiers on. Like Glenn is unruffled by this. Glenn knows who he is. Like Glenn's not going to screw around. Like Glenn's not interested in cookies. And yeah. Glenn is unfazed by this, but you could tell Cooper is torn, right? He's literally torn between Glenn, who's trying to help him and bring him along, but he wants the cookies and he wants that Corvette and he wants to sleep around. You know, he's, he's had a taste of it before. He's making a beeline and they give him, you know, he gets a card. <laughs> I mean, you know what Cooper's doing next. He's making a beeline to Jim Rathman. Yeah, well, first he's going to go pick up one of, uh, you know, hopefully get one of Shepard's spare cookies right then. And then following that, go to <laughs> wait the, up. Yeah. <laughs> this is a much better episode, right? The episode ends in what's probably a drone shot. If it's not just CG, it's a drone shot of, um, of Shepard driving, but this is a much, much better episode. And it's my hope that the series continues to get better in this vein. Like, like I breathed a big sigh of relief when this episode ended. Yeah, I liked it. Um, you know, they're building character, they're getting more complicated. We're sort of seeing the challenges. I would have liked to have seen a little more of the Soviets at this point. Like that would have been good to ratchet up the tension. Mm -hmm. You know, it's but still madmen though. You know, it's, it's very much madmen. It's yeah. just much better. Down to the skinny ties. It's just a much better take on Mad Men, NASA via Mad Men than the first episode. Yeah, um, that's a good point. That's a good point. But I liked it. I liked it a much better. Um, you know, it looks it looks good. Like, they're, it does feel like I'm in the 50s. It does, again, it does feel more like the Mad Men version of the 50s, but it felt like the 50s. 
And again, it didn't feel like the 50s in a stupid way. We've talked about this in some of our podcasts. Like, I always hate it when they make the past look kitschy. Like, the world doesn't look kitschy. Like, their clothes just look normal and natural. Their cars look normal and natural. Like, you could see yourself in this world, you know? Right. Yeah, it was good. It was good. A better second outing. Any any missteps in this or anything you would have liked to have seen? No, I mean, you know, just the, the their choice of overall strategy of coverage of tone is not really about the right stuff as we spoke about in the first episode other than that i think it was very very well done yeah uh, again we'll see if they can keep it up but uh, a, a, a sophomore outing shall we say uh with some significant improvements and again it's it's hard to find their footing you know hard to yeah. find their footing all right, should we wrap there? Yep, see you next All time. All right, we'll be back for episode three of uh, our Right Stuff, com- The Right Stuff Companion. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for listening. See you, Peter. See you, Doug.